Good evening and welcome once again to our Bible study series, Show Us Your Glory. I trust if you've been with us for uh, a number of these studies, you're starting to see that glory is a major topic in the Bible, both in the Old Testament as well as in the New. And we have now come to the New Testament. We are in part five of what will ultimately be a seven-part series. And as always, I want to mention that the outline notes as well as all of the previous recordings for these studies are available through our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And I would strongly recommend downloading the notes and having them printed out ahead of time so that you can follow along because there are a lot of scriptures that we look at and rather than take a lot of time to be thumbing around through the Bible, I've tried to put the main ones into the outline. There'll, there'll always be some extra ones, but at least you'll have those right in front of you and you can follow right along. So without any further ado, we have come to page, well, somewhere around page 38 in our outline, but I want to do a little bit of a review. And again, we are in part five of this seven-part series. Part five is entitled, Glorious Gospel, Glorious Church. By no coincidence, the very gospel through which we are saved, it's called the glorious gospel. And the church that is to result from the gospel is by no coincidence called the glorious church. And we're going to move even a little further tonight and look at the ministry that God has given to the church, the ministry that is a part of the new covenant, and by no coincidence, again, we will find that it is a very glorious ministry. God is a God of glory, and throughout the scriptures, he has chosen to manifest his glory in a variety of ways. And his chief glory, listen to me very carefully here tonight, his chief glory has been manifested through his Son. There's never been anything quite like the radiance of God's glory that shines now through the face of Jesus Christ. The apostles saw it. They wrote about it. It changed their lives. They were never the same after they saw that glory. And this is God's intent for you and for me. And I'm going to stress this again tonight. If our preaching, our teaching, our going to church, our ministry, if all of that fails to bring us to the glory of God, we've missed the mark. Paul said in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So the ultimate goal the bullseye, as we've been saying, the mark that we want to hit is the glory of God. And sin 
caused man to miss the mark, to fall short of the mark. Sin in the Bible, we saw, literally means to miss the mark. And it doesn't just mean to miss the standard or to miss one of the commandments. Of course, that's part of it. But in this scripture, all have sinned, missed the mark. Paul expands the meaning of that in the very verse and falls short of the glory of God. So in essence, he's telling us what the mark is. The mark is the glory of God. Man was made in the image and likeness of God. The very image of his glory was stamped on his innermost being. Through sin, that image became marred. And we have forever since then been trying to hit the mark, but we can't on our own. It always comes up short. We always fall short until Jesus Christ came on the scene. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and, John says, we beheld His glory. We saw His glory. We, we saw it up close. We studied it for three and a half years, and it changed our lives. Now, last time, we jumped from the glorious gospel to see that Christ's mission, stated while he was still here on earth, was to build a church. Not a building with steeples and pews and bells, a glorious church called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we saw in Ephesians 5 where Paul explains the relationship between Christ and the church and the purpose for his sacrifice on Calvary. It's directly linked to this building of a church. Let me read those verses again. Ephesians 5 25 to 27 from the New King James says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And we saw throughout the New Testament, the Greek word for glory is doxa. Well, the word that Paul uses here for the church is endoxos. In other words, in glory. A glorious or glory-filled church is what Christ gave himself for on the cross of Calvary. And so, on the day of Pentecost is when most Bible teachers and theologians agree the church was born with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had been telling the disciples, I must go back to the Father so that another counselor, the paraclete, the, the comforter can come. And when he comes 
a lot of things are going to change. And one of the things that happened immediately on the day of Pentecost, they saw something. They saw tongues of fire, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We've mentioned a lot of similarities between fire and the glory of God. It produces light, it produces heat, it's something very manifest, it radiates out, and the glory of God is often referred to as God's radiance. And so, the purpose of the new covenant, the purpose of the gospel, is, of course, to grant us forgiveness of sins, to save us, to bring us into a born-again experience. All those things are true. But we still fall short unless we understand the purpose of the gospel is to give rise to this glorious church. Without spot, without wrinkle, the wife of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. Now, we left off last time looking at some scriptures in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the church and how there were regular demonstrations of God's glory in the church, all through the Holy Spirit, who is called by Peter in his epistle, the Spirit of glory. So on the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the glory of God. The church was born. God began to lavish the church with glorious riches we studied about last week. And it's in the church now that God has chosen to manifest, reveal, and display His glory. In the church. In the church, God desires to manifest glory. Not to say that He can't outside of the church, but this is His dwelling place. This is like the tabernacle of old in Moses' day, now we have become the temple of God. We are the tabernacle of God's presence and God's glory. And so, in Ephesians, Paul says, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, picking it up now on page 38 in our notes, uh, we've come to Roman numeral D in the outline, finishing up this section on the glorious church. The Apostle John was given a unique privilege. He was transported in the Spirit to actually see the finished product, the glorious church, the Bride of Christ in all of her glory. It's recorded in the last book of the Bible, written by John, the book of Revelation. And two key portions of Scripture we want to look at in the book of Revelation are in chapters 19 and chapter 21. Let's begin in Revelation 19 and verse 1, and we'll skip down to verse 7 just to save some time. After this, 
I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. What's all the fuss about? What's all this shouting and celebration? Well, verse 7 explains it. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Regardless of anyone's doctrine or theology, you cannot get away from the facts that Jesus Christ is getting married. That's right, he's getting married. The Lamb is, of course, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who... Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is mentioned 19 times in the book of Revelation by the title Lamb. The wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We learn two very important things that are hinted at earlier on in scriptures, but this is plain and clear for everyone to understand there's going to be a wedding and Jesus will have a bride to marry and this is the greatest event yet to come the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready Paul was referring to this in Ephesians 5 when he talks about a presentation if you go back and study those verses that we read just a few moments ago in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, it says there that Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, just like a husband and wife, that he might sanctify, cleanse her with the washing of the water, that he might present her to himself. Those are very interesting words. Present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She must be beautiful, radiant, glorious on that wedding day. No spots, no wrinkles in the garments, no blemishes, holy and without blemish. The NIV uses the word radiant, a radiant church, glorious, radiant church. So, what the book of Revelation is talking about here in verse 7, the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It, it highlights the fact that there must be a preparation. She can't just go in there in blue jeans and, you know, with her hair a mess. I'm speaking figuratively here. This is wedding day. We all know what brides do for their weddings. They prepare themselves months ahead of time often with beautiful gowns and flowers and the whole nine yards. Well, the wedding of the Lamb is no different. The bride must be glorious. She must be spotless. No wrinkles, no blemishes. She must be holy. That's the work that is going on now in the church. 
God is sanctifying the church. Jesus is washing her with the water of his word. We are being transformed, changed from glory to glory, ultimately so that we are like him. You know, we have to be like him if we're going to marry him. He wants a bride who is like him. So, this preparation is very important leading up to the wedding. Then in Revelation 21, John actually sees the bride of Christ in eternity, the finished product. He sees the church in all of her eternal glory. And we're going to read quite a bit of scripture here in Revelation 21 because I want you to see the connection between what John is describing here and all the other verses that we've been looking at concerning the church being glorious and being his bride. Revelation 21, starting with verse 1. Then, and of course you have to know the book of Revelation to understand, a whole lot of stuff has happened. The great white throne judgment has taken place in Revelation 20. Uh, The beast, the Antichrist, Satan have all been hurled into the lake of fire. There's been the final judgment of all souls. They've all stood before the great white throne. Then, so Revelation 21 Verse 1 and onwards is all speaking about eternity, the eternal kingdom of God. Everything else has passed away now. For then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Note those words. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is all in line with what we were just discussing. The bride must make herself ready. She must be glorious, beautiful, adorned, without spot, without wrinkle, when she is presented (coughs) to her husband prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, if these verses are new to you, you might already be getting a little bit confused, because he said he saw a city. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, and then, still referring to the city, he says the city is prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And what we're going to see here, throughout this chapter, the city is the bride, and the bride is the city. And the terms are used interchangeably. The New Jerusalem is not just a place made out of stones and gold and stuff. It's a figurative expression for the very bride of Christ. And so all of the glory, all of the beauty that is described here concerning the city 
is actually referring to the church in her eternal glory. Let me read verse 2 again. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So we're already understanding this is not a literal city. This is people. God doesn't want to dwell in a city or a building made out of rocks and gold. He wants to dwell with his people forever. And this that John is describing is the very dwelling of God. It's the eternal tabernacle of God, the temple where he will spend all of eternity, and it's made out of people. The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning. All that's finished now. This is eternity. No more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now remember, we keep switching back and forth between the language of a city, New Jerusalem, and a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now it's very explicit. Come, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Very hard to not understand what this is talking about. This is Christ's bride. This is the wife he has married now. The wife of the Lamb. So what does he see? Verse 10. He carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me a city. A lot of people get confused on this. It's really not confusing. If you understand, the city is the bride, and the bride is the city. And you keep shifting back and forth between these two metaphors. Verse 10 again. He carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So, John now is describing for us the bride of Christ the wife of the Lamb. 
What is the very first thing that catches his attention about the bride of Christ? Verse 11. It shone with the glory of God. A glorious church, brilliant, radiant, beautiful. You find all these terms here. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. Now, remember, the angel said, Come, I'm going to show you the bride. He didn't make a mistake and and go, Whoops, I'm going to show you the city instead. He is showing John the bride. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The city, he's describing now the city, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Without doubt, we can say that Paul's words were correct. Jesus is coming for a glorious church that he will be marrying. It's his bride. She is prepared for him. She's been preparing for him. The wedding day is first and foremost in her mind, as with any earthly bride. She is prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And all these symbols and metaphors, if you read this entire chapter again, I think it will become clearer to you that it's all referring 
to the church, to the bride, the wife of the Lamb. She shines with the glory of God. And everything about her is precious, brilliant, pure, no spots, no blemishes, pure gold, a holy city. And the emphasis throughout is on the glory of God lighting the city, the glory of God shining from the bride, and of course, God and the Lamb are that glory. They are that light, that lamp that shines throughout all of eternity. This is the end product. This is what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 3. We're being changed as we're looking into his face. We're <clears throat> being changed from glory to glory into his very image and likeness. The image that was marred when Adam and Eve sinned and we fell from glory, that glory is now being restored through the glorious gospel and through Jesus Christ, who gave himself for a glorious church. There's a portion of scripture I want to read. It's not found in your outline notes, but I think it's appropriate here. In Isaiah chapter 62, and I've talked about this previously, that very often, especially in the prophet Isaiah, there are end times prophecies that have dual fulfillments. They refer both to the kingdom of Israel as well as the church. And again, I think this passage that we are about to read has implications for both. Isaiah chapter 62, I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 7. It's talking about Jerusalem. And remember, we just finished reading, there is a new Jerusalem in heaven. <clears throat> the Bible talks about two Jerusalems, an earthly Jerusalem over in Israel and a heavenly Jerusalem. This portion of scripture may very well have implications for both. Let's read it. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn. Notice the word shines. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. We read in Revelation 21, at the very end there, how the nations from the new earth will bring the honor and glory into the new Jerusalem. That's in the eternal kingdom. But even during the millennial reign on earth, this is going to be happening. Jerusalem will shine out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. 
You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Note the language, crown, splendor, royal diadem, shining, blazing. Verse 4, no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah. If you have a note in your margin, Hephzibah means delight. My delight is in her. You will be called Hephzibah, and your land will be called Beulah. In the margin, it says, Beulah means married. How interesting. His delight is in her, and the land will be called married. For the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give Him no rest, till He establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. I think you can take this both ways. It's referring to the kingdom of Israel being the most glorious nation, the most glorious kingdom on the earth during the thousand-year millennial reign. I also think it can refer to our time right now as God is preparing the church, making her a glorious bride prepared for her husband, in whom he can take delight. God is posting watchmen, intercessors. He's posting men and women on the walls to cry out to him day and night. What is it that they're praying for? What is it that they're seeking? They're calling on the Lord, giving him no rest and giving themselves no rest, until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Well, in our case, it's the new Jerusalem. Give him no rest until the new Jerusalem, the church, the bride of Christ, no longer has any spots, blemishes, or wrinkles. She's the praise of all the earth, and she is prepared for wedding day. It's a glorious church. Jesus is coming in his glory for that glorious church. And one more aspect that we need to look at now to complete this fifth part, and that's found in Roman numeral 4 on page 39 of your notes. There's a glorious gospel there's a glorious church, and there is a glorious ministry. It's called 
the ministry of the Spirit. It's the only valid ministry now under the New Covenant. The ministry of the Old Covenant came with great glory. We've talked about this before. When Moses came down from the mountain with the covenant, his face was shining with glory, had to put a veil over his face, the people couldn't even look at him. His ministry was glorious. However, we're going to see in this very important passage in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul compares and contrasts the old covenant ministry of Moses with the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the passage we're about to read, Paul uses the words glory or glorious 11 times. 11 different times he's going to use the word glory or glorious, referring to both the Old Covenant ministry of Moses and the New Covenant ministry of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3. Let's read from verse 3 down to the end of the chapter, verse 18. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence as this is ours, through Christ, before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Okay? Ministers of a new covenant. Very important term. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And he's going to bounce back and forth between Moses and the Old Covenant and the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant. He already talked about two different tablets in verse 3, not on tablets of stone, of course, referring back to Moses and the Ten Commandments, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, the law is going to be written on hearts, not on stone, and the ministers of this new covenant will be competent by virtue of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, verse 7. If the ministry that brought death, referring to Moses and the Old Covenant, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory. Pause there. Note those words carefully. 
the ministry of Moses came with glory, but it brought death. The letter killed. The, the letters of the law killed. Nevertheless, it was a glorious ministry. It came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was. Pause. Glory came on the face of Moses, but it faded away after a time. It was a fading glory. Verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Hallelujah. I feel the anointing tonight. I am so thankful for the Holy Spirit, for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We've got something more glorious than Moses coming down the mountain with his face shining like the noonday sun. We have the Spirit of the living God inside of us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us. How much more glorious a ministry Every one of us, I'm not just talking about pastors or full-time ministers. Every one of us, by the baptism in the Holy Spirit, is a minister of the Spirit. It's more glorious than anything Moses had. Hallelujah. If you're listening to me tonight, and you've not yet received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, don't waste another day. It's a free gift. Say, Father God... Baptize me in the Holy Spirit. I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I have confessed all of my sins. I've been born again. You promised this gift. I receive your gift now. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Then he bounces back to Moses. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, that's what the Old Covenant did. It condemned men. It said, you shall not do this, you shall not do that, you shall not do that, and if you do, you're condemned. Well, Paul explains this better than I can in the book of Romans. The law came to stir up sin. It didn't come to make people righteous. It came to enhance their condemnation to lead them to a better way, which Paul is describing here, the new covenant. What was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Back up a minute. Verse 9 again. If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, and we all have to agree, Moses had a glorious ministry. My goodness. Signs and wonders. He had power. He had authority. His face shining. But how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? <clears throat> Verse 10. For what was glorious 
has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Note these words that Paul keeps using. Even more glorious. How much more glorious. Surpassing glory. All referring to the new covenant. What was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Verse 11. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts. Paul seems stuck on this word glory. He just can't get away from it. Every time he tries to talk about the ministry, the new covenant, or the Holy Spirit, he ends up talking about glory. And he can't help but compare its glory with the fading glory of Moses and the old covenant. And he uses all these superlatives. How much greater, how much more glorious, surpassing glory, even more glorious. This is the ministry of the Spirit. It's the ministry that God has given to the New Covenant Church to make her glorious. No surprise. Glorious gospel, glorious church, glorious ministry. Why? Well, they were baptized on the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit and fire, and Peter in his epistle refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of glory. So, obviously, when the anointing of the Spirit comes upon us, the glory of God is upon us. We have a glorious ministry. Verse 12, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But, verse 16, and this refers to Jew or Gentile, whenever anyone, anyone, turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now notice how verse 18 ties this whole chapter together. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So, Moses' ministry 
It was glorious. The glory faded away now. It was replaced with a new and a better covenant. Based not on letters engraved on stones, but based on the blood of Jesus, based on the sacrifice of God's Son. And now that Christ has gone back to the Father, the Holy Spirit has been sent, the Spirit of glory, and it's through the Holy Spirit that the church is being made glorious. How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness. Friends, how desperately the church and the world need to see the anointed, glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit in these last days. Not human flesh, not man's wisdom, not human celebrity and entertainment. I'm talking about the pure glory and fire of God that comes through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. How we need to pray in these last days for anointed ministry, anointed ministers. Please pray for your pastors. Pray for your ministers. Pray for your Sunday school teachers. Pray for your song leader. Pray for every ministry in the church that it would be anointed with the Holy Spirit and fire. That we would decrease, He would increase. And in so doing, this surpassing glory that God has now made available to the church through the Holy Spirit would make the church glorious, transforming her into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. Jesus spoke a lot in the Gospel of John about the Holy Spirit, the coming Comforter. I must go away so He can come. And He explains to us there different aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry. He will convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But a little later on He says this, John 16, 13-15, When He the Spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. Verse 14, He, the Holy Spirit, will bring glory to me, Jesus Christ. He will bring glory to me, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Another way of saying, revealing it to you, manifesting it to you. So, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to reveal, make known, and manifest the glory of Jesus Christ. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. One of the primary ways in which this happens is through 
what we normally refer to as the gifts of the Holy Spirit, mentioned and listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and also a different list in Romans 12. They're called gifts, but I prefer to refer to them as manifestations, because that's the term that Paul actually uses when he lists them. Let's look at this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 11, where Paul so eloquently describes the church as a body, having hands, feet, eyes, ears, etc., But he starts off this way. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now, to each one, each one. So often in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes sure that no one is left out. We saw this last time reading from chapter 14. If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, everyone. And he goes on there to say, while everybody is prophesying. The whole church, everyone. And likewise, here, to each one, every member of the body of Christ has been given one of these manifestations. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Perhaps more than one, but each one has been given a manifestation of the Spirit. I've highlighted that word manifestation for a reason, because the Greek word that is translated there literally means exhibition, expression, to render apparent, to appear, to manifestly declare, to make manifest, or to show. I think you get the picture. This is not something hidden. The purpose of these gifts of the Spirit, manifestations of the Spirit, are to give expression of the glory of God, to make it apparent, to cause it to appear. Remember, John 16, that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to bring glory to me and to make my glory known, to take from what is mine and make it known. So, through the baptism in the Holy Spirit, each one is given the manifestation, 
the exhibition, the expression of the Spirit. And then he lists a variety of expressions. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. This is something we're going to hear with our ears. To another, the message of knowledge. Another thing we're going to hear by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit. In case you didn't catch it the first time around, he repeats himself. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. We don't pick and choose. It's not like a salad bar line. He will distribute these according to his own will, and it's based on your calling. It's based on your assignment. God will give you the necessary tools and equipment to carry out that assignment. And depending on your ministry, these manifestations will match that ministry. Remember, Paul said, we're not competent in ourselves to do this ministry. Our competence comes from the Holy Spirit. These gifts, these manifestations, are what equip us to carry out our assignment. We can't do it in our own fleshly wisdom, in our own cleverness, using our own human talents alone. We need supernatural power and ability through the Holy Spirit. Study carefully this concept here, the manifestation of the Spirit. What does that imply? It implies that in the church there should be regular displays of God's glory, regular exhibitions of God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's healing power, His miracle-working power, and all the other things listed here. The church, the Bible says, is to come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of the Lord. These are not luxury items. We need these manifestations if we're to fulfill our ministry and our calling. That's why in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5, we've read these verses before, but I'll repeat them, Paul said the following, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration. Oh, did you notice that word? A demonstration of the Spirit's power. Again, like the word manifestation, this is something that's going to be on exhibit. There's going to be a display of power, an exhibition 
of power for all to see, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Why does God want this demonstrated in the church? Verse 5 explains, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Oh, this is the cry of my heart. You don't know how much I cry out to God for this. I am so tired, and I think you are too, of just human wisdom, eloquent sermons, carefully worded, and, you know, all the dictionaries and all the commentaries and everything's just right. And in the end, what do we come away with? Putting our faith in man. Wow, what an excellent preacher he is. What a great sermon that was. No, 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 no. Paul says, when I come, I don't want you saying, wow, what a great preacher Paul is. I want you saying, what a mighty God was in our midst today. He demonstrated his power. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to trust in God's power. And we read also from 1 Corinthians 14. I want to read this again because I think it helps tie everything together now. 1 Corinthians 14, 23 to 25. This is what a typical church service was like in Paul's day. If the whole church comes together... Notice, the whole church came together. And everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand, or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But, if an unbeliever, or someone who does not understand, comes in, while everybody is prophesying, there's one of the manifestations we just read about, prophecy, in 1 Corinthians 12, two chapters earlier, while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God, not the preacher, not the pastor, not the choir leader, he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. God is really among you. How we should be hearing that more and more at the end of our church services, our Bible studies, our prayer meetings. Wow, God was here. God showed up today. I felt his power. I saw his glory. He spoke to me. He touched me. I'm leaving this place changed. Instead, what do we often hear? Oh, what great singing that church has. Or, I really like the way that pastor preaches. He gives a good sermon. Now, I know people mean well when they say these things, but we need to come to a higher place, folks. We need to come away saying, God was really here. I felt the anointing 
of the Holy Spirit today. He quickened my mortal body. He healed me. He set me free. God revealed something of Jesus in my heart and soul today. This is God's purpose in the church. It's to manifest His glory, and He does it through the Holy Spirit, through the anointed ministry of the Spirit. What is it called? Surpassing glory. How much greater is the glory now that we have in this new covenant through the ministry of the Spirit? Let us be in prayer that God would stir up the manifestations of the Spirit, stir up these gifts of the Spirit in our churches, bring a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that our faith would rest not on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Sorry I've gone a little bit over tonight, but I want to conclude this part five tonight. And let me reiterate a couple of things. Any gospel preaching or gospel message that fails to restore people to the glory of God has still missed the mark. It might have accomplished part of God's purpose to teach them about forgiveness of sin, to get them born again, even to take, have them take water baptism and receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. All that's good. All of that is a part of it. But the glorious gospel was given to the church to raise up a glorious church. And we must keep reminding ourselves, we missed the mark. We don't want to keep missing it. Now we want to hit the mark. The mark is God's glory. Sin caused man to fall short of the glory of God. Christ is now restoring us to that glory through the Holy Spirit. I left a few questions here for all of us to consider. Here's one. In the modern church, are we really hitting the mark? Is the modern church, I'm not just talking about our little congregation, I'm talking about the modern church. Is it hitting the mark? Or have we replaced the glory of God with other things? Entertainment, famous celebrities, light shows, and you can fill in the blanks. Are we settling for something less than what God wants us to be seeing and experiencing in the church? Is the modern church really hitting that mark? Is it becoming a glorious church? Is the church today becoming more visibly radiant and glorious? Are the spots and the wrinkles disappearing? Or is she looking more and more like the world? Very often we feel like we have to imitate the world. Why? Why do we want to be like the world? The church should be visibly radiant, visibly glorious in these last days. A city 
set on the hill, shining the light of the world. Are we actively pursuing the riches of His glory? Or are we more interested in running after the gold and mammon and riches of this world? Here's a tough one. Is our ministry even as glorious as Moses? Supposed to be more glorious. Is our ministry more glorious than Moses? Does it still produce condemnation and death? Or does it produce righteousness and life? Only one way to do that. It's through the ministry of the Spirit. Are there visible demonstrations, manifestations of God's glorious riches of grace, wisdom, and power? If there are not, it's not God's fault. We have to search our hearts, cry out to God, repent, and come back to Him empty and say, Lord, we need you. We need an outpouring of the Spirit on the church to make her glorious in these last days. The prophet said, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Nations will be coming to your light. Sadly, it's often the other way around. The church is running after the nations, trying to find out what their latest fashions and styles are. Let us shine brightly as we keep looking into the face of Jesus Christ, allowing God to transform us into his very likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Holy Spirit. Let's pray tonight. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, the church could not and cannot exist without this baptism in the Spirit with fire. We have no ministry apart from the anointing of the Spirit. It's only your anointing that makes us competent as ministers of the new covenant. Oh God, forgive us for trying to do it in our own human strength, human wisdom, persuasive words of man's learning and man's wisdom. God, we empty out all of that at the foot of the cross tonight, and we say, come Holy Spirit. Fill the church with your glory. Stir up every gift, every manifestation of the Holy Spirit. There would be signs, wonders, exhibitions, demonstrations, manifestations of your grace, power, glory, and wisdom in these last days. God, make the church glorious. Prepare her for wedding day. Iron out every wrinkle. Wash her in the water of the word to remove every spot, every blemish. Let us not be spotted by the world, but let us come out and be separate, holy, sanctified, 
cleansed in the blood of Jesus, washed with the water of the word, sanctified with the fire of the Holy Spirit. God, bring revival to your church, to your people in these last days. I thank you for each and every one who has joined us tonight. Bless them, anoint them, encourage them, fill them with your glory. Let them understand the greatness of your calling upon their lives. You've called us to be the bride of Christ. You've invited us to the grandest of all weddings, the wedding of the Lamb. And God, we believe it is about to take place. Prepare us. Make us ready for that day. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.